Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the care that you exercise over our souls each and every day. Lord, we're thankful for what we can share in our local church. Lord, we're thankful for the work that we can see you doing. We're thankful for the work we don't see you doing. Lord, we're thankful that you're always working, even when we're not even thinking or planning or hoping, and yet everywhere we turn, we see your hand at work. Lord, open our eyes to be careful about these things and careful to give you praise for everything that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll have our teens dismissed and the rest of us, let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and we're going to, as we did last uh, Sunday night, we did an exercise in studying the meaning of words. Uh, We took the word virtue and uh, traced it through the scriptures and uh, we got out the dictionary and uh, we did uh, the work that was there. And uh, that is a start. If you do not understand the words, then you cannot move to the next step. And so the next step tonight is context. Hebrews chapter 6. Now, it is with a little fear and trepidation we turn to Hebrews chapter 6, because I will warn you, this uh, is one of the more difficult passages in the entire scriptures A lot of people stumble at this passage and and have some difficulties here. And yet, uh, I believe our lesson tonight is uh, greatly illustrated by this passage. And so you will have to follow very closely or you're going to just stand there and go, what in the world is he talking about? All right. And uh, we don't want that. We, we want to make the Bible understandable. How many of you have studied at some level or another English grammar? I mean, verbs, subjects, predicates, predicate nominatives, direct objects, indirect objects, appositives. Uh, now, if you don't like grammar, I, I feel sorry for you. Because you're not going to have the tools necessary to really delve into the Word of God. Now, tonight we're talking about one word, context. During this political campaign already, how many times have you heard the candidate say, They took what I said out of context. Hmm? I mean, all the time. And if... They didn't take it out of context. You say it anyway so that you have an excuse to cover up your befuddlement or your misstep or your faux pas, as uh, they might say. Let me tell you something. The reason we have, in short, the reason we have so many religions in the world is because people refuse to keep Scripture in context. They want to take the Bible and change it and make it say what they want to do. Now, it's interesting. People that believe you can lose your salvation. You know where one of the places they love to go is? Hebrews chapter 6. Now, 
We don't believe that you can lose your salvation. We believe it's an eternal salvation because Jesus paid for it. Jesus has never taken away salvation from anyone in the scripture. You can go through the Bible. I mean, there are some real candidates. How about King Saul? Now, if anybody should have lost their salvation, should not King Saul have lost his salvation? Hello? I mean, isn't he a great candidate for that? He disobeyed the Lord. He reigned 40 years, the Bible says, and 38 of them he spent in disobedience. And the last day of his life, he can't get God to answer him. He can't find any, any peace from God. So he goes and inquires at a necromancer, a witch, a seance. The only problem was God messed up the seance. Because if you read your Bible, Samuel, not some demon impersonating him, showed up. And what was his message to Saul? Tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. Now, was Samuel in heaven? Yeah. Was Jonathan a righteous man? That's the only one of Saul's sons that died that we actually really know anything about. He was a man that loved God. He said, you're going to be with me. Now, some people say, well, that just meant he was going to be dead. Well, then why did he say you're going to be with me if he meant you're going to be in hell and Jonathan is going... He put everybody in the same category. I don't think we're stretching the scriptures... Because we go earlier in the scriptures and it says that God gave Saul a new heart. Does that sound like salvation? Sounds like it to me. And so I go to Hebrews chapter 6 when I want to prove that you have an eternal salvation. But you have to do a little work. Just like the dictionaries. several years ago, somebody said, well, pastor, you only work a few hours on Sunday. And I said, well, I I challenge you, follow me around during the week sometime. But you don't get up and preach for 35 or 40 minutes with only five minutes in the study. You, You got to do some things to be ready to say something. And so... If you're going to study God's word for yourself, and by the way, every Christian ought to study God's word, you're going to have to be prepared to do a little work. Get out the dictionary, but better than a dictionary, get out your Strong's Concordance and follow through the Bible how God uses words. Now, tonight we're talking about context. If you're going to understand the words, you must keep them in the context in which they are used in the Scripture. Now, the first context we covered last week is the definition of the word and the word usage. You must start there. But as we put the words together, you must keep the word in its grammatical context. If you take the subject... 
and apply it to the wrong verb and the adjectives and apply them to the wrong nouns and the adverbs to the wrong verbs, if you don't make proper grammatical correction, uh, connections, you're not going to understand the scripture at all. And so what I want us to do is we're going to start reading here in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Now, let's look at that sentence. Now, the writer of Hebrews has no mercy on the grammatically challenged. Let me tell you. Uh, This is complicated sentence structure. It is run-on sentences. I've always loved big, long sentences. My teacher used to say, I told you to write a sentence, not a paragraph. I said, there's only one period. She says, there's too many clauses. I said, make that into five sentences. And I would get marked down. I wanted to tell her, but I'm just imitating the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews. And, but she wouldn't have accepted that. She said, I want you to write in uh, what I can, uh, tell you is good English. I, I, I tell you that our Bible is in the highest level of English. And yet those who study these things tell us that your old King James Bible is somewhere between a fifth and a seventh grade reading level. Somebody says, Pastor, you just made me feel really dumb. No. The reason we don't understand the Bible is because we're not careful to do the work to take the clauses and the phrases apart so that we can understand. And when you read it in one big sentence, now let's look what it says. Therefore, that is a conjunction, that is connecting leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. It's saying that we are leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. What we are talking about here is developing true spirituality or spiritual maturity. The word perfection simply means Lacking no necessary part. How many of you have ever put a puzzle together? I like putting puzzles together. How many of you gotten down and missing the last two or three pieces? Isn't that terrible? I mean, there's a few things more frustrating. Well, that is an imperfect puzzle, according to the meaning of the word perfection. You see, we've modernized the word perfection in modern English to mean something that is unattainable. That's not the Bible word. The Bible word for perfection is attainable. It is something that we need to move toward. That means you are lacking no serious part. 
If you're going to get into heaven, the only way you're going to get into heaven is you must be perfect. You must have a salvation that will carry you from this world into the next. Amen? Lacking no part. That means no sin unforgiven. I'm glad God takes care of the perfect part. Amen? But he wants you to be a perfect Christian. How can you be a perfect Christian? Lacking no major part. Number one, you got to get saved. Number two, you got to get baptized. Number three, you got to serve God through the church. That makes you a perfect Christian. You're lacking no major part. How about in your fulfillment of the Great Commission? How can you be perfect in that? Well, you serve God in your church and you give as God directs you through the mission's offering to go into all the world. Now, if you're not giving what God has directed you, you're not perfect. If you are, if you're doing what God wants you to do, what more could God expect? You say, but my little bit of missions giving doesn't go very far. Well, you let God take care of that. He is the perfect perfector, amen? He takes the little bit that we can do and make it count, makes it count. And so as we look here, it says we're leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. We're going on to perfection. Now, these are the things that we're not doing. We're not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, let me ask you a question. If you are spending your life worrying about repenting from dead works so that you can be saved over and over and over again, let me tell you something, you're not perfect. And you may not be saved. Because if we leave the doctrine of Christ, that means we have forgiveness. But many people in religion, their entire religion is about finding out some new sin and going back and repenting from that sin. Uh, I don't mean to be uh, just picking on the Catholic Church, but they're such a glaring example of this thing. Why do they demand that you go to the confessional, my friend? Well, it's so that you can admit the sins that you've done. It's laying again the foundation of repentance every time you go to church. What God wants you to do is to realize that when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he pay for? All of them. Now, does that mean we do what Bob George, I don't even know if he's on the radio anymore. He wrote a book several years ago. And say, God's forgiven you for all your sins, so don't worry about it. Uh, no, that's not right either. The pendulum swings. But you cannot spend the rest of your life trying to repent from sins that God has forgiven you from. If you are doing that, I want to warn you. You are in deep spiritual trouble. You're not moving on 
And if you're not moving on from the doctrine of Christ, from the principles of the doctrine of Christ, your issue of your salvation is still in question, and you'd better be careful. Look what the next one is. And of faith toward God. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. I wish I had a dollar for every Christian and told me, well, I just lost my faith, but I'm going to get it back. Wait a minute. This passage says if you can lose your faith, it's not the kind that saves you. We're not to be relaying the foundation of repentance and the foundation of faith. Those things can only be laid once. You get born again one time, my friend. And once you have life, you need to do something with that life, not go back and try to be born over and over and over and over and over and over again. Am I making sense? Okay? That's what this passage is talking about. Now, I've just destroyed the foundation of the Catholic faith, of the Nazarene faith, of the holiness movement, of the Pentecostal movement, because that's what their religion is all about. You are eternally secure in Christ. That does not mean you'll never sin again. But it does mean that you are not to relay the foundation of salvation that has been done in Jesus Christ. Now, are we still together? Because we've got to move on. Now, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. There are all kinds of strange things that people do. In fact, we discussed this at the ordination There's a phrase in the Bible called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? We're going to spend the night discussing and showing from the Bible what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and what it isn't. But there are some religions that spend the whole relationship with God your entire time here on earth trying to get baptized and re-baptized and baptized again with the Holy Spirit. That's not possible. And living in fear and claiming that the resurrection has already passed and that it's not coming. And I mean, just absolute confusion. Paul's the, I'm Paul, I'm sorry. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. Most people believe it's Paul. But it says, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. It says, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again. Now see, perfection, we have a semicolon. That's the direction that we're headed. We're leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. That's salvation. We're moving on to perfection. Now these are the things that we're not going to do. We're not going to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. We're not going to lay again the foundation of faith toward God. 
We're not going to lay again the doctrine of baptisms, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, and the doctrine of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. We are going to move on unto perfection. Now we go to verse 4, and this is where it gets complicated. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, we're going to have to cut this up. For it is impossible. Okay, what is impossible? Well, the Bible tells us for those. It is impossible for those. And now we get into a set of what we call dependent clauses and phrases. Okay, and these are all going to describe those who were once enlightened. Now let me ask you a question. Do we know if someone who was once enlightened is saved or unsaved? Well, we do by the context, but we haven't gotten there yet. So let's go through all of these phrases. Who were once enlightened, follow your scriptures. That's phrase number one. Who, it says, and... So we're connected here. This is still talking about who, those who, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Does that sound like a saved person? Surely does. Well, that helps us understand what once enlightened means, does it not? It means that the light of the gospel has shined in that person's heart. Second Peter chapter 1, until the day star and the day dawn until your life be filled with the light of Jesus Christ. Okay, and we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Does anybody doubt that the who that is being spoken of is talking about someone that is saved because you cannot be a partaker of the Holy Ghost and not be saved, amen? And have tasted of the good word of God. Now here's an interesting thing, and we can go to seed here. I don't know how many unsaved people I have met who claim that they have tasted of the good word of God. But I want to warn you, the Bible says you can't taste of the good word of God unless you're truly saved. That's what this passage is talking about. Because God's word is not meant just to make you feel good. It's to make you live obediently to God. And you can only do that with the Holy Ghost working in your life. And even with the Holy Ghost working in your life, other passages of the Bible tells us we're still going to come short and fail and sin even after we're saved. Are we still together? And the powers of the world to come So they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. 
We understand by that middle phrase there, being made partakers of the Holy Ghost, that every one of these phrases applies and describes a saved individual. Amen? So if you're here tonight and you're unsaved, none of these phrases apply to you. Even though you may feel very positively that you've tasted the good word of God and that you've had religious experience according to this passage. That's not true unless you've been saved. Now it's impossible for those that have been saved, we can talk because all of these phrases talk about those. Then we come to verse six. Let's just take out the phrases here. For it is impossible for those, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. You see, it is impossible for a person who is truly saved, if they fall away, if they were to lose their salvation, to ever get it back. But look at the next phrase. Seeing they crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Did I read that correctly? Actually, I read it incorrectly on purpose because that's the way most people read it. But those two little words that are in there is absolutely essential. They crucify how? To themselves. Now, just a minute. Can you crucify the Son of God to yourself? Well, you could in your own mind. What it's saying here is You are denying the physical crucifixion of Christ as being sufficient to pay the price for your sins when you think you were saved and then you thought you lost it. Lost it. Are we still together? If you think you were saved and you think you lost your salvation, you, in essence, are denying the efficacy or the worthiness of the actual crucifixion of Christ and are demanding another crucifixion of Christ to pay the price for your sins. Could I challenge you that what, you've, what has just been described in the book of Hebrews is essentially what the Orthodox and Catholic Church celebrate in the Mass? The re-crucifixion of Christ. Now that is terrifying thought, is it not? You see, you may say, Pastor, I don't agree with your grammar. Well, let's move to the next point of context. Let's move to the biblical context. You see, the passages around here 
And I'm going to purposely not read verse 7 right now. We'll come to it in just a moment. But chapter 9, I want you to look with me in verse 24 and 25. Because what we're talking about here is multiple crucifixions of Christ. Verse 24, 25, the Bible answers this. And this is what we're talking about, the biblical context. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Look at verse 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Does that answer the multiple crucifixion statement fairly simply? You see, the biblical context demands that Christ die only one time. And if you have any questions, read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. It says, for, I'm sorry, uh, verse 12, by this, but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 14, For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Christ died once. That's the biblical context. We take that back to this passage. And if you are not trusting in the one-time sacrifice of Christ forever for your sins, you are not scripturally saved. Are we still together there? That's what it's talking about. But we must put this in the, in the context of the rest of the passage. So let's go back to Hebrews 6. And, and I'm going to try to, to not... Jump too much here, and if we need to, we'll pick up again next Sunday night where we left off here. But the Bible is its own commentary. You will hear me say that many times. It is the key to understanding the Bible is using the Bible to interpret or help us understand the Scriptures. Verse 7 gives us a picture. For the earth which drinketh in rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now we have a picture given to us. And if you don't know anything about gardening and things, so we're going to move to another context. We have the grammatical context, we have the biblical context, and this is called the historical and cultural context. When this picture was written in the first century, was printed out in these words, it meant certain things. Do we have any farmers in here tonight? Kind of, sort of. Okay. Do you grow crops in a briar patch? No. You know what? You cannot grow crops in a briar patch. 
In fact, briars will not grow very well in good soil. Briars need rotten soil, poor soil, unhealthy soil to grow in. They need soil that's been packed down, often soil that's boggy. How many of you have ever been walking out into the field and all of a sudden you find yourself in a briar patch and halfway up to your knees in mud? You know why? Because that's where briars like to grow. Now, if you don't understand about different types of soil, this passage won't make any sense. You see, the writer is contrasting that there are two types of soil. There is good soil that is tillable. It is drained so that the water doesn't pool on it when it rains. It, it is soil that will allow the decomposition of the nutrients and things that are in the soil so that it will have something to put into the plants. And there's other soil that's just poor soil. It wouldn't grow anything no matter what you did. Now, we come to the modern understanding. Now, here's what we do. You have a boggy, briar-ridden patch of soil. What do you do? You go in, you burn all the briars, uh, briars off the soil. You put in drainage tiles and you drain the soil. And then you take in tons of fertilizer and you make the soil willing to grow something. I want to challenge you that in the first century, none of those things were possible. Bad soil stayed bad. Good soil continued to grow. And so the picture here of this passage is there are people who are good soil that receive the word of God and it produces fruit and they are saved. And there are other people who have bad soil who receive the word of God and it does not bring forth fruit and they are not saved and they spend their life relaying a foundation of repentance, relaying faith in God, trying to go over and over and over again on the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands and all of these other things that they hope someday will move them spiritually to the point to where they will be saved and they never get there because they're crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh and refusing to believe that the one-time sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to pay the price for all of their sins. Are we together? Now, what we've just done, I hope I haven't been too tedious for you tonight. And believe me, I could take twice as long to do the same thing, but I've tried to be careful with our time. is we have gone through a passage that 90% of all commentaries in print mess up. Peter, would you agree with me on that? He's read 90% of all commentaries. I haven't read that much. But I'm exaggerating, okay? But listen... We've got to keep it in its grammatical context, taking the phrases that apply to certain things, putting them in agreement with one another. We must keep it in its biblical context. No understanding of any individual passage can contradict any other passage in the Scriptures. 
So you must know your Bible. If you want to know one reason why you hear me harping on your Bible reading schedule, read through the entire Bible. If you are not familiar with the entire realm of Scripture, there's no way that you can keep things in its biblical context because you don't know what the Bible says. Then you must keep it in its historical cultural context. By the way, just for fun, we'll be done. How many of you knew the word flight is used in your Bible? Flight. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, is that talking about American Airlines? Just a little fun, all right? Another one says, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your re-reward. Now, we don't have time to explain that all, but people have actually used that to say Christians shouldn't fly in airplanes. That's not what it's talking about, okay? The word flight had nothing to do with airplanes until after 1903, all right, when the Wright brothers invented the first airplane that only flew for 30 seconds. Uh, what it's talking about is running away in haste. The Bible says that the Christian ought not run away from anything in haste because their trust and their faith ought to be in God. Amen? Now, I tried to lighten it up at the end just so you can understand that there are words in your Bible that are modern words, but they don't mean what they do today. You have to understand your Bible as God intended it to be understood. He wrote the message to the people to whom it was addressed. And so as we do the work, and if you're a little tired right now, that's because you've been working. That's a good thing. It ought to work. And if it works... You will be tired. But that's a good thing too because now you're exercising. And exercising will allow you to work harder in the future. Amen? And by the way, not all passages are as difficult. And by the way, we did not cover every part of the passage that we went through. We were trying to get the main theme and the main direction of what was being spoken of here. You must keep it in its context. You must know the definition of the words. You must understand grammar and applying things to what they are directed to. You must keep it in its biblical context. You must keep it in its historical and cultural context and in what those words meant, the thorny ground versus the good ground, the bad soil versus the good soil, you cannot in this day take bad soil and transform it into good, which happens every day in modern 
in the modern world. It was not an option in first century. And so the illustration would hold true in the first century, but you could come up with some really perverted theology if you used a modern century definition to understand a first century picture. Amen? Are we together there? And so uh, what we're trying to do is give you some tools with which you can apply yourself to the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, we ask that you would help us each as individuals to go through the scripture and to be very careful not to twist them to our own destruction. Lord, the word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It will convict us and draw us closer to God. It will also harm us and draw us farther away if we allow it to. Lord, I pray that no one in this room would be pushed away from God's word, but we would be drawn closer to it, that we may understand our need for salvation. And the true salvation can only be obtained by trusting simply in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We ask you to do your work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And we'll take just a few moments here, and if you'd like to pray.